1 Corinthians chapter 1, and we're going to just start in verse 21, and I think Wes will have those up there on the screen for us. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21, and we're going to cover through 31, and I just want to hit some points. I want to make, the main point that I want to make this morning is that it's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And where does that, where is that written? Do you know where that's written? Is that in the New Testament or is that in the Old Testament? It's the Old Testament. We would think that that would be a New Testament verse, but it's an Old Testament verse because, and I don't, I don't know, I don't like Old Testament and New Testament demarcations. We need to have it for our biblical division of our Bible, but I think the Old Testament or what we see historically with the story of Israel is a story of God's grace in great times of weakness. And I just want to talk about that for this morning. If the Lord will just give me the grace to do it, I want to speak about what to do with weakness. What is weakness and how do we deal with it? What is weakness and how do we deal with it in a biblical way? First Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21. For after that, in the wisdom of In the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. And I'm going to be reading from the King James uh, this morning because I think that it does a a better job with the translation from the Greek. For in that, for after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. What is that saying? We could plug in a word other than wisdom. We could put technology in there. For by technology, the world did not know God. Or we could put in there by the educational system. It's great to have Michael back here visiting in town. Got you all settled in college? Yeah. Okay. Got to see you, man. We've been praying for you. By the by stocks and bonds, the world knew not God. How about this? Religion. Religious, religious achievement. The religious facade, the religious cleaning up of ourselves knew not God. Uh, through social reforms, the world did not know God. Uh, through communism, through that, that pursuit of utopia just without God, Karl Marx, he misinterpreted the book of Acts, knew not God. And so whatever we plug in there, we can realize that by it we do not know God because it pleased God, in verse 21, by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. The foolishness of preaching. There, when you look at when you look at God's plan for the world, and how God works historically in the Bible, and how God has worked in our lives, it looks kind of foolish a little bit, doesn't it? And this word word foolishness is the Greek word where we get the word moron from. Moron, like a non-thinking uh, simpleton, a person that is just foolish, that does foolish things. It looks foolish that a person is preaching or proclaiming the grace of God is the way that God has chose to save them that believe. Human reasoning does not enable people to get to know God, nor does it deliver us from our sins. These benefits only come through the foolishness in the eyes of the flesh of the message preached, namely the gospel. So during our lifetime, there are times when we feel that we are most of the time, where we feel that we are naturally at a disadvantage in our humanity with what we're facing. Um, We feel that we are at a, that we are like teetering, about ready to fall. And this is where the position, in one sense, that that the flesh finds itself, that it's insecure because it's not understanding 
what God is doing. Paul's not saying that all the wisdom that unbelievers have produced is worthless. However, in comparison with what the wisdom that God has revealed about himself can accomplish, human wisdom is of no value. So how has God, how has God done this? And first, in the next verse, we read this in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 22, is that the Jews historically required a sign. Remember that? They were always saying, show us a sign, Matthew 16, 1 through 4. And other times the Jews were always saying, the Pharisees were always saying to Jesus, show us a sign. I think there's something inside of us that sometimes says, God, show me a sign you're in this. Give me a sign. Give me a sign. Show me some miraculous thing. And he does that. Sometimes he'll do that. But sometimes it'll just be what Jesus said to the, uh, to the Pharisees, to the, Israel, to the Jews. He said, the sign that I'm going to give you is the sign of Jonah. And what was that sign of Jonah? Anybody know? The resurrection. It's death, burial. It, it, was, the, it was the seeming death of Jonah. His, his being in the belly of the whale three days and then him coming out of the whale's mouth it speaks of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What is the sign that we are looking for, that the Jews are looking for? The ultimate sign is that Jesus rose from the dead. Why is that important? Because the resurrection of Jesus Christ tells us that, he's, that he is alive that he is living, that the worst thing that the world could throw at Jesus Christ did not defeat him because he, he rose from dead. And actually, through his seeming defeat at the cross, something else was defeated, and that was sin, the flesh, and the devil. Yes. These three things were defeated through the, the cross, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so the Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. I would say that our United States, our Western culture, our Texan culture is really fashioned after a Greek mindset. We are attracted to the shiny and the beautiful, to the powerful looking, to the inspirational, to the moving, uh, to the touching, to the uh, powerful, controlling, um, uh, orientating to the alpha in the group. This is what the Greek mindset is, and it's inside of our American mindset, whether you're an immigrant or you are... You are living in this culture, and we find that in the Western culture, even in Christianity, that there is a pull, there's an attraction to the, to the shiny and the powerful. Yes. And, and it's real. It really is. As a pastor, I, I, I see that. Sometimes I can look and I can observe what's going on in certain, in certain circles, and that can be like, I can feel that it's like a pull. Like, man, I, and I don't want to say this, but there is this part, there's the flesh is saying that's what you want to be. You want to be that. But you know something? We've been there, haven't we? We've been to the powerful, the influential, the moving, to the inspirational, but not spiritual. And it's not spiritual. And I'm not saying that anything that's big and being used by God is not spiritual. I'm just saying that out there, that there is this attractive type of um, institution that, that pulls on the Greek Western mindset and... Greeks typically required wisdom. Wisdom here means something that's rational, something that makes sense, something that we can get our hands around. Explain, to God, explain God to me in this book or these 12 steps so I can grasp who God is, so I can have a grasp on my Christianity so that I can call myself a disciple because I've, I've gone through these steps. There is something that is, that is powerful, that is acceptable, that is moving, but it, it, but it can lack genuine 
anointing, presence of Christ, and transformational power. Do you understand yes. what I'm saying? Yes, sir. Did you know, and I'm going to use some examples from the Old Testament. Did you know, maybe you knew this, but remember when the Israel, the Israel was delivered over to Babylon and they were in captivity yeah. for those years? God opened the door for the Jews to go back to Jerusalem. Awesome event, right? This is something that they had been waiting for decades for. They were waiting for years and years and years. You know how many Jews actually went back to Jerusalem to rebuild? Do you know? There was 2% of the Jewish population. 98% of the population initially stayed back home in, in Babylon. It was a remnant. And they went back to Jerusalem to rebuild the city of God. 2%. Isn't that wild? Because you would think, hey guys, this is your, this is your opportunity to rebuild, to, like, to possess the land that God has given you, and only 2% return. Why is that? Because there was something attractive to the flesh in Babylon that kept them there. And, but, that is, it, but that was bondage and it was not freedom. You know, if we surrender to the attractive, to the powerful, to the lovely, and to the preferable like at the, at the at, and it's the message of the garden of eden that it was beautiful to look at it was it was wise and it was good for food that leads to bondage what i'm what i'm trying to say here is is that that the wisdom that the greeks were looking at was they were confounded they were confounded because picture it with me okay here is jesus he is coming onto the scene he is the Messiah, and the Messiah really is described in the Old Testament in Isaiah 11, verse 2, as the blessed one, the one that had favor from God. He was the one that was walking around the favor and the anointing and the power of God. And the Jews, you know, the Jews that were accepting him and uh, that were believing on him uh, really truly felt that this was going to be the king of Israel. Now, now get this, because here's Jesus marching into the scene there's a lot of expectations from a nation. Does Jesus surrender to the pressure of the expectations? No. He says in John 4, I'm here to do God's will. And so what he does is, is that he, he is led to crucifixion and he's killed and he dies. Wow, what a, what a curveball. What a slap in the face of the Jewish mindset that anyone that would be hanging on the tree in the book of Deuteronomy, we know in Deuteronomy 21, verse 23, that they were cursed. They were cursed. How can the blessed, favorable, powerful uh, Son of God, the creator of the universe, be cursed? How can that be? Just follow me here. I'm, I'm getting to a point. How could it look that Jesus Christ, by sight in Romans 8, verse 3, is in sin? That he has sin on, that he has become, he has, sin, he, has, he has taken sin, the likeness of sinful flesh, and he looks like he's taken sin upon himself, and he's actually in the place of sin in the eyes of God. How could that be? God's blessed, God's favorable one. How can that be? Because it's just the opposite of the Jewish mindset. And the Greeks were like, this is the way Greeks are thinking. It's really hard for us to understand that, that here's a man who was so powerful, healed people, and he wasn't even able to deliver himself from his own death. That makes no sense. And for the Greeks, it was foolishness. It's absolute foolishness that they said that we would actually believe in Jesus Christ, that he would be someone that he, is the, that he is the Messiah, the Savior of the world. And so they're in this world that we live in. Not only is that whole scene something that is not understood 
that can't be romanticized, that however you cut it is going to be very crazy, very ridiculous. How can you follow Paul? You're in jail. You're, you got, here's Timothy, his mentor, his pastor, his, his hero is in jail in Rome, in chains. Hey, Timothy, who's your mentor? Who's your pastor? Oh, he's the guy that's, well, he's kind of tied up right now. You know, <laughs> it's like, you know, I mean, what, and, and Paul said to Timothy, don't be ashamed of me. Don't be ashamed of my chains because these chains are, are because of the gospel's sake. Paul is saying here, Timothy, don't live in shame. I think that uh, another example, Goliath and David. David and Goliath. David takes down Goliath. David comes. You ever read that conversation between David and Goliath before he takes him down? David comes to Goliath with five stones, and he kills him with one. And they're smooth stones in the river, which just speaks of weapons in our life that have been smoothed over by the movement of the Holy Spirit, the river of God. And these stones have become soft, and they become. There's this agitation, and there's this. And there is this movement, and it's just this water that that water in itself is not abrasive, but actually it 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 um, smooths the stones out. And as they uh, he takes the stone, and remember what Goliath says: Goliath is shamed. He says, "Who are you? You're coming to me with stones and sticks, and and like who do you think I am? A dog?" David's simplicity and David's simpleness and trust in God and his not coming in Saul's armor, which speaks of the experience of a fleshly king who just did not understand the kingdom of God and actually loses the kingdom because of his carnality. David comes in, he says, I can't wear this. I can't wear this armor. He says, I'm going to come in. I'm going to come with what I know. I'm going to come with my experience with God, which may look foolish. And, he, and, and, and Goliath says, I'm so embarrassed by you. I mean, here's a giant man, and here's a little kid, a little kid, a little 17-year-old coming at Goliath, and he takes him down. He says, I'm coming not in my own name. I'm coming in the name of the Lord. You and I, your family, your life with God, your decisions that you're making for Christ in obedience to his will in your life, what you and I are doing is going to not make sense. To people, and it's not going to make sense to ourselves. Sometimes we're going to look at ourselves and we'd we'll be like, <laughs> "Not really much to look at." Here's another example in Genesis 33. I was thinking about this: Jacob and Esau. Right? Jacob just Jacob's the man who he was the one who was ordained by God. He took Esau's birthright because Esau didn't he didn't value it because he just despised it. He thought this is nothing, and he just he. Um, he just neglected it, and he lost it. And so here Jacob comes, takes it. He has it now. God says, uh, I believe it's verse, uh, chapter 29, where, where Jacob is wrestling with God because he's about ready to face Esau, his brother. There's this stress that's going on with, with Jacob. He wrestles with Jesus all night, the angel of the Lord. Uh, he, he, he gets what he is praying for, but he loses Strength in his own ability, and, his, and for the rest of his life, he is he is using a staff. Uh, what does Jacob do instead of resorting to the fleshly ability of himself? And like his brother did, he wrestles with God. And the point I want to make this morning here is is that instead of wrestling with flesh and blood, 
instead of wrestling with the system, instead of wrestling with yourself, instead of wrestling with something that's already been taken care of 2,000 years ago, wrestle with Jesus Christ. Work it out with him. Just fight it. I don't mean to fight him, but there's something about God, and don't misunderstand this, but I think that, and don't misunderstand this because I, don't, I just don't want to be misunderstood. Sometimes we ask God for things, and he's asking us, like, how do you really want that? <laughs> or, or is it, are you just saying this because you've got a plan B? I've prayed those prayers. Well, God, do this, but I'm kind of hoping you're not going to do that because I really want plan B. But I'm just doing the religious thing, and I'm just checking with you, saying, God, if this is your will. And God will say, you know, where's your heart at? And Jacob wrestles with Jesus, and he gets something from God. Next day, we see that he meets Esau. Esau is a picture of the powerful flesh, the, the attractive uh, mover and shaker, the, the, um, the good-looking guy, the, the one that is just like, I want to be like that person. He meets up with Jacob, and he hears that. Jacob hears he's coming, and so what he does, in, in short, he sends his, his, all of his wives out front, and he sends all of his all this cattle out front. He's just cr- trying to create this buffer zone between him and his brother so that when his brother finally gets to him, he's pleased. And his brother, meet, they meet, and his brother says, what are all these women, all these kids? What are you trying to do? Uh, and, he says, and then they talk. They have a conversation. And then the point at the end is what was really interesting is that Esau says, let's go. And Jacob's, and Esau's like, hey, I want my horse here. I'm ready to roll. Let's just get going, you know. And what does Jacob say? Jacob says that if I was to try to keep up with you, and if I, was try, if I was to try to march my family, march my business, march my church, march my marriage, march, march my parenthood, you can put anything in there, march my personal life at the speed of you, Esau, all the little ones that are with young are going to die. And this is the point that we're making here is, is that sometimes, many times, Esau is going to look at you, and you're going to be very intimidated. And he's going to say, what is all of this? What are all these kids? What are all these little sheep everywhere? It's a mess. Jacob, you look like a mess. You smell like sheep, Jacob. And, and here is Esau talking down. Sometimes what you and I do in the will of God because of grace looks like a mess. It looks like a mess. But unto them who are called, in verse 24, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, Yesterday, I stumbled across this video on, on YouTube, and I watched it like four times. And it was a game, a football game in 1993. I don't know if you're going to remember this or not. And I, and I was just reading just about incredible uh, plays on, in football, some historic plays. came across this video of, of Eric, I think his name was Eric Allen, in 1993. Does that ring any bells? Played for the Philadelphia Eagles. You know that? And he played for the Philadelphia Eagles, and they were playing the Jets, and they were down. They were down behind the Jets. It didn't look good for them. Um, the Jets throw, you know, they, you know, the quarterback I can't remember his name um, throws it down, down to the end zone, and out of nowhere, this guy Eric Allen snags the ball at the six-yard line, and he starts running, and it's the coolest thing. That it's only like thirty seconds, forty seconds. The, the guy who's narrating the game is just going insane. He can't contain, control himself. The guy is just wheel, we, weaving in and out, and he's spinning, and, he's just, and he does 94 yards. And it's the longest interception run to the end zone that, that I know of in NFL history. 
the point here, when I, when I saw that, I thought, this is what God has done in this warfare when we thought we were down and we were out. God raised up a man, Jesus Christ, who intercepted something, and he ran 94 yards into the heavenlies and is at the right hand of the Father and won the game for us. God does this. He, he will come in the last minute. Why? Because this is the point, this is the point that, that he's making here is that in verse 25, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So if, by the, if in this world and if in this, in this um, majority of religiosity and the, and the world of Christianity and religion, um, if, we, if there is a remnant of about 2% of the Israelites that come back to Jerusalem, we can compare that in some ways to Christianity, that there really could be a very small percentage, and I'm not saying that we're elitists, that we are better than other people, because we're not. There's awesome churches here in Houston. I'm just saying that there's not going to be a high percentage of people that are really going to be interested and excited about building Jerusalem, because it's something that, is, that looks foolish. Simbal, Tobiah, remember what they said to the Jews as they're building? They're like, what is this wall you're building? It looks so weak. It looks so feeble that if a fox runs up the side of it, it's going to trip. It's going to knock the whole thing down. Why? Because your faith and my faith and your faith of your kids and the faith of your family is embarrassing the devil. It's embarrassing the devil. Have you ever been embarrassed by someone who is in great need? And they come to you, and you don't really have a lot of need, and they come into your into your midst, and you're just like, ah, oh, I just kind of feel kind of embarrassed to talk to them. You know, that's that's exactly what that's exactly what happens here is that God comes on the scene in, su- in such weakness and vulnerability and frailty as a baby Christmas Day. It shames the devil, and it's proving that the weakness of God is stronger than men. Why does God do it this way? Because men. And women and the human race, we glory in strength. We think, that the, we think that the end goal in my Christianity is that I would be a strong Christian. That I would have no problems in my life. That I would have my whole life to act together. And all my kids would be perfect. And that everything, would, I would be the, awesome, the most awesome parents. And guess what? That is not the end goal of God. The end goal of God in your life is that Christ would be formed in you. That Christ would, that we would discover on a daily basis the riches and the, and the glories of his grace and his mercy in us, that we would discover Christ in each other. Can you imagine the next 80 years or whatever God gives you, that your goal every day is that, that I may know him who has called me, that has known me? Yes. God's will in my life is not first to do something for God, but it is really just to know him. Amen. God, this, God, the system, the economy of grace, battles against the economy of achievement by the flesh. And so God used, God has to use, God has to come in in a, uh, in a, very, in a very seemingly foolish way. And by that, he defeats the, the wisdom of men. A pastor back home said it this way. Simple faith defeats complicated evil. Simple faith defeats complicated evil. Paul wanted to, in these verses 24 through 25, he wanted to raise the Corinthians' regard for the gospel message by showing the superiority, that the superiority of it over anything that humans can devise, devise through reasoning and philosophizing. 
Let's go to 1 Corinthians. Let's look at verse 26. For you see your calling, brethren. So he's talking now to the Corinthians. He said, Corinthians, church, look at you. You guys, you see your calling, how that not many wise men after the flesh. And actually, he's pointing to the Corinthian church. And this is very important because he said, in the Corinthian church, he says, there's not many wise men after the flesh. Not, he said that the most of the church of Corinth, they were not people that would be considered very wise people in the system. And number two, not many mighty. This Greek word mighty means capable, dunatos, capable. Man, I am capable. I'm going to march into this situation. I'm just going to set everything right. I'm going to organize. I'm going to do this because this, this whole system, this whole institution, whatever, is just a mess. That's the, that's the statement of the capability of the flesh. But, but Paul is saying here is that God called you, and he didn't call you because you're a capable individual. And don't contend, don't contend yourself if you see someone in your family or brother or sister that's a lot more capable than you are. Just say, praise the Lord, brother. I'm just so glad that you have that in your life because I don't. <laughs> now, I'm not capable. And, that, and then it says not many noble. Now, we, we know that that means there's not a lot of people here in that church of Corinth that, are, uh, that have really reputation. Well, my dad was this great Baptist pastor or my uncle is a priest Many times in Ukraine when we talk to people or in Poland, we'd share the gospel with them, and their answer was, well, I got a brother who's a priest. And that's the end of the conversation. It's like, well, my brother's a priest. Oh, great, great for you. Are you saved? Are you born again? Do you know Jesus Christ is your personal Savior? Because he's not going to be meeting you at the gate. Uh, Jesus Christ is going to be meeting you at that throne. In 1 Corinthians 1, verse 26 it says that not many mighty, not many noble are called. That's okay. If you look at some incredible churches, have you ever gone to a church where God's really moving? I've seen it. And you go into a church and there's this great move of God. I feel like God's moving in our midst in a, in a beautiful way. I really feel like there's this generate, there's this something is moving and I just, I just sense it, you know. But when you look at the church, you're looking at the people and you're like, these are just normal people. <laughs> There's nothing amazing about these people that the world would. It's not filled with CEOs and entrepreneurs and shakers and movers of society. It's just very simple people. Very simple. And this is what, I'm not going to get into politics, but I'm going to make, make this one point about the election. This was what was the great upset about our election, was that nobody thought that, the, that, that, that those that have voted for our current president would be voting for him. Because they underestimated, they underestimated the power of just common, very simple people. And so like when we look at a church, when you walk into a church and you see a great move of God, you're going to find sinners saved by grace. You're going to find, uh, you're going to find new creation. You're going to find people, but you're going to look at them and you're like, man, what are you driving? Well, this is what I'm driving, you know, or what do you do for work? I, I work, you know, I work down the street here at this convenience store. And maybe in the eyes of some people that may not be impressive, but don't be ashamed. Can I tell you, this is the point. Don't live in the don't surrender to the shame and don't surrender to the intimidation of Goliath who's yelling at you. Yesterday we were up at the farmer's market and we were like, we were there and we were just, I was trying to help, but I got wind, I got wound up talking with people and we were breaking down the trailer. You know, we we're just putting things together and, and <laughs> we're putting things together and like there's this coffee sign, you know, your coffee sign there. And I closed it and the seat came right off and just landed on the ground. And I was like, and like as I'm putting things together, it's just like you know, and and we were, Jeff and I were laughing about it, and um, 
and he made a comment about, you know, everything I have is frail. And, and I said, man, it's like this, everything in our lives is just such a funny story. If you look at it, if you shake it a little bit, there's th- you know, if you shake my car a little bit, or if you shake something, something's going to fall off, and it's going to be like, you know, this is the woodlands, man. This is the farmer's market. You've got to have your act together. You've got to have a nice trailer, man. You've got like, you to have this, and you've got to have that. You can't have Jesus on the side of your trailer. <laughs> like, you know, that's just like the foolishness of, you know, foolishness of preaching. I love that, because... In the woodlands, there's this attraction to, and spring, and just everywhere in the United States, there's this attraction to the powerful, lovely, and amazing. And yet, where's God moving? God is moving through the weak things. He's moving through the things that seem foolish. For you see your calling, brethren, not many wise, etc., etc. But God has chosen, in verse 27, the, foolishness, the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. Why has God done this? Why has God done this? So we could walk around just like, oh man, I'm just part of this, you know, this second rate, whatever. No, because God wants to confound the wise. God wants to confound the wisdom of this world. Yes. Don't live in intimidation of the culture around you. Drive down the highway and, and, and or, or you in your, your, your yard looks like, it looks like you haven't mowed your lawn for about four weeks, five weeks, and everybody next to you has this pristine lawn. Don't con- live in this, don't live, and this is a law, this is a social law that, that, is, that is put on people, that where people feel that they have to in some way meet up. God has chosen the foolish things, the moronic things of the world to confound the wise. God has chosen the weak things. Weak here is not meaning weakness to sin. It's talking about weakness in the fact that there is no, no confidence in the flesh in Philippians chapter 3, verse 3. That when you and I do not choose to live in the confidence of the old programming, guess what happens? we begin to live a life that's just very different than the world. And it's a very powerful life, by the way. It's a very powerful life. It's a very powerful life. God has chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things that are mighty. That word mighty, again, is capable. Capable people. Verse 28, the base things. And this is a very interesting word in the Greek. I I discovered this last night. The base things of the world. You know what that word base means? It's Agenes, which means this. It means that you or that person is a poor example of their stock, of their race, of their nation, or of their family. Wow. Interesting, huh? That, you know, like the base things. You're a poor example of this nation. You're a poor example of this, of this ethnic group. You're a poor example of, of this or that. Very interesting. That's what God has chosen. Why has God done this? Because he's, he's chosen to despise those things that are just, you look at them and you just laugh. They, the world can laugh. But God has chosen the things which are not. And this is the, you can't get any lower than this. Things that don't exist, that are just not there. If someone says, I can't hire that person because they just don't got what it takes. They, it, they do not have it. It is not. And God, that is what God has chosen why has he done that? Because he wants, to, through his grace, through his, his power, through, through the inability of trusting in the flesh to, to reveal the riches of his grace, of his nature. And I'm gonna, I want to close with this, that Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Why does he do this in 1 Corinthians 1.29? So that no flesh would glory in his presence. That no flesh would glory in his presence. There's two ways that we can live our life. If there's one thing you get from this message, just get this. There's two ways you can live your life. You can achieve and acquire and live with regrets. Or you can choose to not approach your life 
and your ministry and your family or whatever zone you're in from this perspective of achieving, manipulating, and possessing, but you trust God and say, God, I could go after this in the energy of my flesh. I could go after this in striving. I could go at, and if I lose my joy in something, if I don't have joy, and if I don't have peace, I just know that I've left, I've, I've, I've surrendered to the old program of the flesh. I've left yeah. God in back in the dust somewhere. And I need to go back there and I say, God, you know, let me practice your presence. I didn't leave God. I mean, he's still with me. But, but it's at this moment where we just say, God, I'm just going to acknowledge your presence right now. My wife and I were talking the other night. The thing, all the things that we could rejoice in, that we could say are the greatest blessings in our life, are things that we wanted to have, but we were not able to achieve ourselves, but God graciously gave to us. I mean, Caleb, I mean, each other, my wife and I. I mean, I would have never met her if I wasn't overseas. Where we live, uh, what we have, what we own, the miracles of our life, of your, of your life, that happened. I mean, you know, Kim Dowling, you know, I just think about her story. She came down here and we knew her back up on the East Coast. And, you know, she didn't really have a lot of family up there. She did, but, you know, we, she was always, we were her family, you know. And then she moves down here and discovers she's got a brother <laughs> and a whole family up there. And she's got the, now she's got, you know, a niece and a, a niece and nephew, right? Are they niece and nephew, right? And God has given her a family because, and, and did she know that? No, she just came here by faith to Houston. God gives us those things that we could never qualify for, that we could never acquire. And that's, and guess what? Uh, Proverbs 10, verse 22 is a life verse for my wife and I, is that the Lord blesses, the Lord makes rich, and he adds no sorrow to it. There's no sorrow to what I have. You know, maybe the C is falling off the, my coffee sign. Maybe it's looking really goofy. Maybe somebody's saying like, you know, you got people dancing on your Hummer on the side of the road. What's wrong with you people? I would say that, or maybe you're just working, and maybe you're at a job where you have much higher qualifications, but you're in this job, you know, like, like Michael is, and he's just down there serving and ministering to people. He's, he's, got, he's, got, he's a missionary to that, to, to that part of, of his work on the, on the, in, in Exxon. It's like sometimes you look at your life and you get, get very intimidated by what Goliath is saying to you, what the beautiful, what Esau is saying to you. Don't surrender to that. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 12, 8, 9, and 10. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this. And he's talking about something that he was praying about, but the answer wasn't happening, that it should leave me. This is a crisis Paul is in. Paul is in a place where he is put in a very, he feels that he's at a disadvantage. He would feel that if I, this was not part of my life, I could serve God more. I could travel more. If I had more money, I could do this. And, and God does not answer that prayer, but he says, but he said to me in verse 9, my grace is sufficient meaning that there is sufficient means that there's no lack there's no deficiency that there is that there is because the real need is not i need more money or i need a wife or a husband the real need in your life is not that i need more friends or i need a change of location the real need is i need i need christ i need i need to experience that communion with christ as we heard eduardo talk about that that communion of union it's sufficient that means that there's no lack because you know if we as a christian make decisions based out of fleshly thinking that I'm lacking something and I need to pursue this, we can acquire it, but we're still going to be lacking and that we're going to be sensing that, that lack. So it's sufficiency that, he's, that my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. My power, my dunamis, that inherent power is made perfect. It is perfected 
in the lack of your trust in your flesh. Like, am I, am I, am I, am I clear on that? Like, I could, you know, I could, we could do this, what we're doing here in the energy of the flesh with a, with a guiding fiction of some role model, like this is the way I want to, this is the way I want my church to look, or we can do it with no confidence in the flesh and just loving Christ in our midst. That's what we did this morning. It was just wonderful. We just enjoyed Christ in our midst. And the, the, the power of God is made perfect. And you know something? You ever hear about somebody like that? Is just, you ever go listen to a speaker who has all of this fame and they're like the very amazing people? This happened to me when I went to listen to Richard Wormbrandt when I was a teenager. Here's a guy who was a, who was a pastor, a Romanian pastor, in jail for 14 years, tortured for Christ. And I was thinking about, we're going to hear this amazing guy, and he's going to be like, he's going to blow us out of the water. And we sat down, and he's sitting on a sofa on a stage, and he's very feeble. And I thought, this is not, this guy's not a lot to look at. <laughs> but his testimony was so powerful, because the power of Christ was, was in him, and it was, and it was speaking through him about the testimony of God's faithfulness in jail. For the sake of Christ, and this is the main point of the message right here, for, when I, uh, for the sake of Christ, then I am content with weakness. I'm content with weakness. Are you in a place of need today, necessity? Are you? Be content. Just, okay, I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. I don't know what's going to happen Thursday. Just be content with, with, the, with what we got today with Christ. That, because when we're content and, and insults and in hardships and in persecutions and calamities... For when I am weak, then I am strong. And then it says here in verse 9, the power of Christ rests on me. And I'm going to close with this. When you and I choose not to go the way of the shiny, powerful, attractive flesh, and we choose the way of Jacob, we choose the way of the cross, we choose the way of Christ, and we take that risk of not looking powerful, not looking attractive, and not looking popular, we take that risk, there's something that's on your life that's not in the world. That's the power of Christ. It's the power of Christ. And I've sensed it in my life many times where I've chosen, chosen the road less traveled on. And I said, God, I'm going to go your way. And this is not going to be a popular way. And maybe even my family doesn't understand it. But I'm going to go this way. But you know something? You will experience the abiding nature and the abiding power of the presence of Christ upon you. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. This peace that passes understanding. This joy that is, not, that is not circumstantial. And there's a beautiful word here. It says that the power of Christ may rest upon me. And that word rest upon me is a loaded word in the original. And it, and it means this. It means that there is a covering in your life. That in Psalm 91, that, the, that you are under the wings of God. That, that there is something on your life protecting you from the wiles of the devil. And the point I got out of this when I was studying this yesterday afternoon was is that if I was to leave the sense of weakness, if I got tired of this, I'm tired of just working at what seems to be a disadvantage all the time. I'm tired of that. If I was to do that, I'm going to leave a covering in my life and I'm going to be, I'm going to be a target of some very complicated evil that I don't even know if I could deal with. And, and what do I mean by that? That there is a place in the presence of God, there's a place, there's a covering there is, a, there is this restful presence of Christ in our life that we cannot experience in the flesh. And when the flesh gets involved, if we, if we were to succumb to the mentality of the flesh, it, there's going to be an attraction of just a lot of warfare 
and we're not going to find sufficiency. We're going to live in a lie, and we're not going to discover who we truly are in that. But living in this, living in this place of seeming disadvantage in your life, because that's what God has led you into, there's the power of Christ on your life. Hey, maybe you're a believer in, 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 a, in, a, in a very secular area. Rest in that place where you are. What it may seem to be weak, but there's a power of Christ in your life. And the unseen powers, and this is what I just see what's happening with our church, is that there is the presence of God, that there is this beautiful testimony of the power of Christ in our midst. And then that's when we see people, their, their lives get changed. Amen? Amen? Father, we thank you, Lord, for this great cry that we can proclaim that when we are weak, we are, we are truly strong. That this is our that our greatest weakness is our greatest asset, and our greatest strength is really our greatest liability. We pray today that uh, just for the, there are some needs in the room today. We know that there are people that are here by faith and just need a touch from heaven. Lord, we don't need to pray to beg you to uh, to try to twist your arm to answer prayers. But Lord, the Bible says that if there is anyone that is among you that is in need, let them make their requests known to God. And we do that this morning. We make our needs known to you. We confess them to you, and you already know them. And we just want to align ourselves with the, with the provision of God and just ask you, Lord, that we would see the hand of God move mightily for places to live. We just I know that there are some people here that need a place to live next week. We need to see some miracles and some businesses, some family situations. Lord, we just need to see you break through. We pray these things knowing that you are able and that you are. there's nothing too hard for you, that the arm of the Lord is not shortened. In Jesus' name we pray. Thank you, God. Amen and amen.